You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 364 of the Colombia Calling podcast. This week's episode, 364, feels like a part two to episode 334. And you'll remember US academic Shauna Galuli came on the show to talk about the problem with the coastal cities of Colombia's Pacific. So she talked about Tumaco, Buenaventura and other things. But she's coming back on the show this week in what is a timely episode to talk about the problems in Buenaventura, because of course it's been in the news this past week. But I won't wax lyrical here. You have to listen to her in segment three of the show. And we welcome back again uh, Emily Hart with the newscast. She was missed this past week, and I did have comments about that too. So uh, welcome her back, and of course, for the great newscast. And uh, once again, a thank you to all of you out there who've been uh, sponsoring us on the Patreon campaign. That's www.patreon.com, Columbia Calling, where for as little as $2 a month, you can help out the Columbia Calling podcast. So thank you to all of those of you out there. Next week, we've got a great episode, episode 365, with Juan Jose Guzman. And we're going to be talking about environmental activism in Colombia. And of course, uh, it's a, more than environmental activism. We're talking about youth environmental activism. So quite fun and quite humbling, in fact, uh, to learn more about these issues, but from the next generation of campaigners in Colombia. So right now, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Emily Hart once again, and thank you all for listening. And then we'll be back with Shauna Galuli in segment three of this episode 364 of the Columbia Calling podcast. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of February 22nd, 2021. Colombia's Transitional Justice Court, the HEP, has released a report revealing that 6,000 people were victim to the country's false positive scandal between 2002 and 2008, the presidency of Álvaro Uribe. The false positive scandal constituted the murder of civilians by the military, who then presented them as combat kills. There were widespread and systematic executions committed by soldiers from virtually every brigade attached to every army division in the country. Extrajudicial executions have been occurring in Colombia for more than 40 years, but the HEPs report establishes that the peak of these murders occurred between 2002 and 2008, the most intense years of Uribe's democratic security policy against the FARC. Many victims of false positives were mentally disabled, accused of being FARC collaborators, demobilised combatants, social leaders and even people accused of problematic drug use. Another pattern is the feigned recruitment of people, especially young men, in order to take them to another region, kill them, and report their death as a combat casualty. Particularly concerning is that the official figures before this report were fewer than 2,500 and counted over a much longer period, between 1988 and 2014. The report also establishes that this phenomenon was not the result of a few bad apples, as has often been argued, but that it was a systematic issue, with orders being taken from higher-ups and military commanders. 
For each of these 6,402 victims, the HEP has already identified a name, a surname and an identity card number. A case will now begin to identify those responsible, investigating the army, battalion by battalion. Uribe has somewhat predictably criticised the report and demanded the publication of the entirety of the investigation. The director of the America's Division of Human Rights Watch has accused him of making misleading claims in his attacks on the report. In other transitional justice news, on the other side of the political spectrum, ex-FARC guerrilla leadership have recognised their responsibility in the face of their mass kidnapping charges at the HEP, in a communication which said, We assume our responsibility and call on other actors to join us on the same path. The war in Colombia included diverse political and military actors, national and foreign. The recognition of our responsibilities and those of other actors is fundamental to guarantee the non-repetition of the events that led us to a social and armed conflict which lasted more than 50 years. Though they have not officially accepted the charges at the HEP, this communication suggests they may be on their way. And corona cases continue to drop in Colombia, now at about 4,000 new cases registered per day and fewer than 60,000 deaths overall in a population of 50 million. Vaccines have started to arrive from Pfizer and Sinovac, and more are expected via the COVAX Global Distribution Programme. Vaccines are now being administered, though there is concern about the lack of infrastructure and preparation in Colombia's more remote regions. That was this week's news. Now back to Colombia Calling with Richard McCall. And we're back. This is the final segment of episode 364 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. My very special guest is a repeat visitor, Shauna Galuli, who is an academic from Florida, but uh, doing her finishing up her PhD at the University of Irvine, California. And she's been heavily involved. Obviously, her studies are deeply uh, focused on Columbia's Pacific Coast. You'll remember that she was on episode 334. So 30 period, 30 episodes later, she's back. She decided to come back, uh, which is nice. And we kind of rushed this one together because it's all kicking off once again on the Pacific Coast. So welcome back, Shauna, and give us the lowdown. All right. Well, thank you again for having me, Richard. Thanks for thinking of me and and reaching out. Um, I, you know in agreement with what a lot of people within Colombia have been saying recently, this is something that's really important that needs to receive a lot more attention, both nationally and internationally that it hasn't so far. Um, so essentially within the past couple of weeks, there's kind of been this movement that's sprung out, um, hashtag SOS Buenaventura. Um, and this is happening because in Buenaventura, there has been, a pretty intense escalation of conflict um, like within the past two months. Mm -hmm. This happened because the local kind of Bakrim narco slash paramilitary group, La Lugal, um, split up into two different factions now known as Los Chotas y Los Esparnatos. And they, yeah, I know the names are whatever. Um, and now they're fighting for control of the port city and te territory within the urban center. So as we kind of talked about on the last episode, Buenaventura as a port city 
moves 60% of Colombia's product in and out of the country. A, a lot, billions of dollars move through that port every year. And in addition to the billions of legal dollars that are reported, there's also a lot of narco-trafficking activity that moves through that port as well. So that's the big reason why these two groups, these two new factions, basically, um, are fighting for territory within the urban center of Buenaventura. As a result of this, there are about... 200,000 people at risk within Buenaventura of displacement because of clashes between the two factions. I think there's been something like 38 different clashes between the two since 2021 began. Um, we're in so February. I mean, we're yeah, in, so that's we're about six weeks or so. Yeah. 38 clashes in six weeks, more or less. So are we, are we seeing, I mean, okay, so you, you said that, that, that figure, 60% of all, everything that comes in goes out of Colombia comes through Buenaventura, so the port. And I think it's the statistic, 88% of the people there are, are Afro-Colombian, Afro-Pacific. And, and, and it's been a problem. I mean, Buenaventura has, I think, I guess 100 years ago, it was you know, a place to visit you know, for your holidays and, and so on. It was where the, sort of, I guess where the wealthy put up their heels and, and so on, and, and the railway track and uh, connecting Cali and, and everything else. But today, I mean, it, it is mired in what you would say is misery. And when you talk about these clashes and these groups seeking to you know, I, grasp um, control. These clashes, they're just taking place in communities, through the streets. I, I, you, I mean, you haven't been in a year, I understand. Yes. Yeah, so because of coronavirus, um, you know, my university has placed kind of a total moratorium on fieldwork. So full disclosure, I haven't been there in person since last February. Um, but I have been in communication with a lot of my contacts on the ground there that that live there. Um, and yeah, it's a thing. It's happening in neighborhoods. It's happening because these two groups are trying to control different neighborhoods. Um, a lot of the houses within Buenaventura are constructed out of wood. Bullets go through wood mm. very easily. Um, and so this is having a huge impact. I think last week, uh, something like 30 families were displaced because of a recent clash between the two groups with, again, hundreds of thousands at risk. Uh, because this is, ha this is happening in, in the urban center. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, you have other groups that are in the rural areas kind of fringing around Buenaventura, including the coastal swamps, which are also a way to get things out. And so there you have ELN and FARC dissidents, as well as other paramilitary groups still fighting for control over territory in the rural part outside of Buenaventura as well. And so and you said that the risk of 200,000 people being displaced. What is the population of Buenaventura? Oh, gosh. Hold on. <laughs> but I, I doubt it's, a, it's, it's not a million yet, is it? No. No. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge amount that could be, that, that is definitely possibly displaced. I mean. So the estimated 
population is about 500,000 in the urban area with, I think, a few a few thousand more in the rural areas. So this is a significant chunk of yeah. the city's population. Yeah. Now, and, and when we talk about it, so these groups, Chosso, uh, whatever they're called, Chotas, Ashotas, and everything else, these groups, they they want domination of areas in order to control drugs trafficking, let's say the illicit materials leaving Colombia, are they also involved in the actual production of these illicit, like uh, the pasta for cocaine and so on? Are, they all, are these groups the same ones or are they dealing with other groups on the outside? Because it seems so complex. You know, you've got one group here, one group there, but yeah. are they, you know, is it one large family run network trying to knock off another large family run network, kind of a mafia thing or are these uh, uh, everyone for himself almost? Yeah. So, um, it's a bit of both. Uh, to a certain extent, people within La Local, the larger group that just split into these two separate groups, were involved along different chains of the production process of cocaine. Um, there's also other groups that are involved that they deal with, that they have partnerships with. Um, so it's, it is very complicated. And even within it, it's very complicated because it's a mix of different groups and things change, right? Like again, La Local had a pretty consolidated hold on Buenaventura for a bit of time. And then now like within the last two months, things have just kind of exploded because of these divisions within the initial group. According to the kind of like official version of the story, um, it started because members of the same organization, right, back when everybody was La Lugal, killed three of their fellow members and stole 200 kilos of coke. Isn't killing within these groups rather, you know, current? Doesn't this happen all the time? I mean, to have a group divide into two over this seems well i guess the 200 kilos is a certain amount of i mean you can't put a price on someone's head of course but they have um yeah. on their life so 200 kilos i don't even know what the market value for that would be but i thought that killing and death is is kind of routine for these groups yeah um you know i think that the division is less about the three deaths and more about the 200 kilos because that is seen as a bid for control. Yeah, Right. So obviously I'm not, um, like I'm not close with anybody (laughs) within these organizations. So I don't know the details, but I can speculate that this was somebody within the same organization kind of not pleased with the way things were running and making a bid for control within kind of trying attempting an internal coup Mm -hmm. within the organization, which has now led to this faction split. So we've seen this kind of thing before. I mean, the power struggles within groups and that's why, I mean, obviously you can accurately speculate now all of your contacts down there because you have, numerous contacts because your your <laughs> thesis is is focused on on this area uh, what are they saying to you i mean what are they saying uh, that, that you know in in 
comparison with on other occasions, because you know, for as long as I can remember, Buenaventura has been a hotspot uh, for violence, the conflict, for you know, everything else. I mean, but but what are your what are your people on the ground saying? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's been a steady progression of things getting worse since uh, probably about 2018. I will say that my context told me that back in the last presidential election, there was no electoral violence in Guadalajara for the first time in a very long time. Uh, well, why? Um, I think in part was the peace deal. Yep. There was a lot of faith and hope placed in the peace deal. At that period of time, FARC wasn't in Buenaventura at all because they had demobilized and the dissidents hadn't yet started their new faction. So there was no FARC. The ELN was currently in a ceasefire with the government at that time. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of the paramilitary groups were trying to fly under the radar to see, or paramilitary groups slash Bakriminez. Mm -hmm were flying under the radar because they were waiting to see what would happen with the peace deal. Um, and then when it became clear that perhaps the peace agreement would not be implemented in the way that a lot of people hoped um, or as quickly as people had hoped, groups saw this as an opportunity to take control of recently vacated territory by the FARC or seeing that there were two less people with, you know, skin in the game. So there was more space for these other groups to come in and try and take control. Uh, yeah, strategic free-for-all. Yes, basically. Um, so there was this significant decrease in violence, even, even in Buenaventura. Um, and then kind of starting once again in 2018, things started to pick back up. Um, and we're, we're kind of seeing like a explosion of like a slow build of violence, partially as a result, well, more than partially as a result of state abandonment yeah. in what I'm doing at. Yeah. We're, we're, as well as in other parts of the Colombian Pacific region, which is nothing new. No, nothing new. Now, they, when we get onto this state abandonment, and obviously this has been highlighted, it was the human chain and the marches that was done recently. Everyone dressed in white and did a human chain. Yep, uh, last last week. Okay, and so this was to you know, I guess, call attention to the situation. It was we saw it, but I haven't seen anything happening yet, and uh, I know that the. Minister of Defense, and I, I will say this every time, that the police department needs to be separate from the Ministry of Defense. It can't be seen as internal policing as an army. But anyway, that's another story. The Minister of Defense has sent 120 extra policemen, I think, or something like that. And so, I mean, the only response, as always, is militarization. Yeah, and that's that's not... Well, I guess maybe at this point that is needed because things have gotten so out of control, but the cops that are already there, there's whole neighborhoods that they can't enter because they're totally controlled by these local narco-trafficking groups. So like, what's the point of, spent of sending 120 more cops 
that still won't enter these neighborhoods that need security the most. Well, you, you know, they'll come down and guard the, the economic, uh, you know, the formal economy. And yeah, the, and it'll the population be, will be ignored. Yeah, it'll be the, the port and like the two nice hotels yeah. right near the Malecon. Yeah, that's right. And the, the, is it still the Estelar, the, the big one down there? Um, it's Cosmos Pacifico now. Oh, wow. They changed the name. But same, same yeah. old, same old. But, I'm uh, sure it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Probably just rebranding there, uh, um, <laughs> but that's the thing is it's always at the expense of the communities. It's always at the expense. Yeah. So let's let's we've got to we've got to delve into this. And you says this is your study, and I know it is. Is the Pacific Coast is is just worrisome that how overlooked it is by the national government and how it is. I mean, you know, there's no real connection. Uh, I mean, there's a road. I guess it was it is it uh, Tumaco to Pasto. I want to say, and and then, yeah, and then there is another route from there's an, um, another road from Cali to Buenaventura, and then the rest of it is not connected. I mean, the rest of the, I mean, really not. I mean, if it's there's torture, if there's anything, and uh, and this has been the way it's been forever, and you kind of get the feeling that right from the very beginning, the Pacific was abandoned, just like. Uh, the you know Colombian authorities abandoned the Panama type thing, seen as a swampy outpost for people of slave descent, uh, and uh, therefore not of any use at all. And so, what I'm getting at is there is a, a, an inherent systemic racism towards the Pacific Coast from Bogota, Medellin, and wherever else. Yes, <laughs> I mean no argument for me on that one. Um, I would say that the state of the state abandonment to the level that we see it, not only in Buenaventura, but throughout the Pacific coast is a result of an actively anti-black state apparatus mm -hmm. and actively anti-black state legislation and policies. Mm -hmm. um, and this brings me to a interesting slash disturbing point that there I'm, I'm not the only person who's saying this, right? I've also, I've pulled this from um, Inter-American Communities is that possibly this type of violence committed by armed groups that leads to large-scale displacement within a place like Buenaventura might be a way to move economic interests in the area. Huh. So you displace these populations through violence committed by armed actors to clear space for things like mega projects that the Colombian state has indicated it is very interested in having in Buenaventura. I mean, at this point, um, they're dredging um, part of the bay. To, they started in 2019 dredging part of the bay to make the canals deeper so that even larger ships could pass through Buenaventura. Where they're dredging is known to be a mass grave where thousands of bodies were thrown earlier in the conflict. And dredging this canal means that people who are still searching for their disappeared loved ones will never find them. They're basically, they're disturbing a mass grave site. 
But so they'll never find them. There'll never be reconciliation. There'll never be the truth. The jurisdicción especial de paz will never be able to get in there. Will never be able to, and and this will just be buried again. Let's say the truth will be buried again, and the cycles of violence will continue because there'll be no way to, uh, you know, to create. uh, I mean, a truth commission or anything else. And oh, this is happening all over, I think, but Buenaventura is the best, the, it's the best uh, example. Now, this idea and, and, and the theory of the economic interest is something I could buy into very, very easily because uh, we have a government uh, and we've had governments, and that's not, I can't just lie it on this government. Every government has only ever been, uh, I would say, interested in the whole extractive process of Colombia, you know, that, that we can ship everything out and get the dollars that way, rather than looking within to see how better we can reform and, and you know, let's say modify an economy to best suit, and in this case, the people of Buenaventura. So these huge boats will come in. I would expect, as you said, you, that, 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 that part of the bay that they're dredging, uh, I'd expect them to dredge further and probably displace people from some of the island because they're going to need to expand. I mean, I haven't been to Buenaventura since, and I'm ashamed to say, 2007. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say. Uh, but it's not exactly somewhere I'm going to go with my kids. So, you know, that's, that's the truth of it. Uh, you know, uh, and now travel, travel doesn't occur. Yeah. So what, who, I mean, rather than just saying the state and without incriminating yourself, do we know of, of big enterprises moving in there? Um, I, (laughs) (laughs) I, You know, I'll say that these are projects that are of interest to international developers, foreign capital investments, and of course, to the Colombian government as well, because this is the type of income that the Colombian government would like to see. I want to read a quote (laughs) (laughs) from a a report by the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights. Um, also to like demonstrate to the listeners that this isn't just something that, you know, I'm coming, I'm saying. <laughs> the commission also received information indicating that in municipalities like Buenaventura, Soacha, and Tumaco, forced displacement could be a means to clear sectors planned as growth areas in municipal development plans. The idea is not to improve living conditions for inhabitants of poor neighborhoods, but to build large-scale works that attract foreign capital investments or mining, housing, tourism, or business projects. During its visit, the commission was told about Commune 8 in the city of Medellin, the majority of whose inhabitants are Afro-descendant persons, with projects planned like the Metropolitan Greenbelt, a metro cable station, and the Travaya, there were large-scale displacements of Commune Ocho's residents by illegal armed groups. So not only is this something that I'm not making up, this is something that has happened in Colombia in the past to Afro-descendant populations in largely Black zones. And I, uh, yeah, so I've got, uh, I don't know how much, on towards the Pacific, it's like if you go from Medellin and the highway up to Urabá, uh, lots of it has been uh, lots of the, the concession is with a, a big Chinese firm 
and a lot of the people working mm-hmm. are all you know basically uh, slave labor from china uh in places like uh, tarasa and i i want to say mulatos and places like that these places, and and you know they've been on strike a couple of times for unpaid wages and of course we don't hear about this and the police have had to move in mandarin speakers to do interpreting and so on but uh this is the same company which is involved in the uh, future metro of Bogota. Um, and given that these companies are, are very well known for their port building in, in the Philippines and elsewhere, I wouldn't uh, put it past them to be also you know, eyeing up uh, certain projects on the Pacific coast because of that. Yeah, connection. if there's a chance that that business as well as businesses like it could be very interested and large-scale projects in places like Buenaventura and Sumaco. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's really complex because, unfortunately, what I see here is the economic drive for displacement, let's say, for investment, is the, yeah, let's say it's the total platform behind which everything moves. But then the running clashes in the streets and I, I, I mean this in the, in the best possible way, is the superficiality of the violence to get to the platform at the end. And yet this is what is most affecting the populations is awful, awful violence, which is just a means to an end for economic growth. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, what do we see? I have to ask you this question. Is it how can we, or how, I mean, as an academic, you, you, you write, I, do you suggest solutions or do you, point to other places in the world which have resolved issues of this case i mean what what, what can we say to people is like, because if i say something they're like yeah but what's i mean you know they need the investment it will it will provide jobs that's what someone mm-hmm. will say to me and i say yeah but these are humans living yeah. in precarious situations trying to make the best of their lot but what yeah. what can we say to them to to let's say a naysayer I mean, so I think that it's, it's important to look at what's going in and what's going out and what stays. Okay. So 60% of all of Colombia's import-export business goes through Buenaventura specifically. That's billions of dollars a year. Yet somehow there's upwards of a 60% unemployment rate and upwards of an 80% poverty rate in Buenaventura how is there so much money moving through and yet seemingly no way to create jobs, no way to improve the living? Like there's billions of dollars moving through the port every year. And the majority of the people in the urban center do not have access to trash services, drinkable water. So like these are super basic things that the government is responsible for providing could easily provide for off of the taxes of a a fraction of the goods that move through that port. And yet that's not happened. It's just not in their interest. Yeah. It's not in their interest at all. Because communities have been very vocal and mobilized against the idea of these mega projects in Guadalajara as well as in Tumaco. Um, 
And so it's kind of like, oh, like these pesky communities who are preventing progress from happening. Um, and no, it's not in the government's best interest to provide them with the basic necessities that a government theoretically, even by the most conservative uh, viewpoints of political theory, is responsible for providing to its citizens. So I don't see, I don't see any solution. I don't, and I don't want to be. I mean, obviously, it's 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 out, outrageously negative. But I don't see while there's this economic driver behind it. I don't see any solution when you've got was it eighty percent, was sixty percent of unemployment, eighty percent poverty. Yeah, upwards of both. And and yet, you know, a, a central government more interested, obviously, in in the investment projects and which will bring countless wealth to somewhere else um i don't see them changing that uh, and the and you know, it's not as if buenaventura has been silent you said you know the community groups are vocal it, you know, last mm-hmm. time we spoke we were talking about uh, you know, the blockades that took place and 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 all of these other actions and now we're we're i don't know a, a I guess it's six or seven months on from when we last spoke, and yet we're in the same situation. How? What's what's to say that in six months' time, let's say on episode three hundred ninety-four, another thirty episodes, we're not having the same conversation again? You know, uh, unfortunately, I wouldn't be surprised if that is something that we're doing in six, seven months' time, because what I think needs to happen is a pretty dramatic restructuring of the way things work. I mean, there's a reason why it's called systemic oppression because the systems in place actively work to prevent people from having peace, security, quality of life. That's, you know, that's, that's why it's it's called that because the, the system in place is actively working against people achieving these basic tenets of human rights. Mm. And, you know, I think unless there is wider mobilization within Colombia in solidarity outside of the Afro population, it's going to be a slow change. And, And unfortunately, I think that, um, you know, many people within the country are just so used to, this is the way it is that there is this level of violence and poverty and conflict because it's been that way since before they were born. Um, and you know, that's not to say, I I think there's a really vibrant peace movement here. Obviously there's really strong civil society. There are organizations doing tremendous work here but it's always going to be the struggle against these larger economic interests that the government is is most i guess in cahoots with um because that serves you know this elite representation within colombia which is who's always been president which is who's always been minister of whatever um who's always owned these, you know, huge swaths of land that they stole hundreds of years ago. 
And of course, there's just no representation, is there, in, in politically for the Pacific Coast? Um, is there I, is there one black minister? I think whenever it happens, it's usually usually minister of culture or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's just no representation and, and, you know, it's a huge part of the country. It may not be all the votes needed, you know, it may not be as weighted in terms of votes, but it's a huge part of the country. And when you think of that, again, like the money, and we, we've talked mainly about Buenaventura, but Tumaco also, you know, it moves cash. I mean, that's the truth. And and I know that they, isn't, it, isn't there still a plan for a port, a deep water port in Bahia Malaga or, or around there? Isn't that still on the table? Yeah. Yeah. So, which is one of the most beautiful areas and one of the first places I ever visited in Colombia way back uh, when I didn't have any gray hair. Um, so, we're looking at decades now, but um, so beautiful, wonderful people, and, and just this it felt like an unspoiled Eden uh, for, for nature. And, and yet, this, this, this chatter about another deep water port never seems to go away. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that like, and of course, while it's most egregious in the Pacific, it's also here too. For example, uh, there was a protest last week in front of the ministry of the interior. And one of their demands is that here in Bogota, um, the minister of like ethnic affairs is not indigenous or Afro. It's a, it's a white woman, yeah. essentially. I also see the irony of us uh, two white folk <laughs> immigrants to Colombia chatting yeah. about the situation. But you are an academic expert, and I'm just a voice piece, so <laughs> so, so I think it's fine. But but I think I understand totally. I mean, how how it it is. It's almost unthinkable. This, uh, you know, the the person in charge of, let's say, indigenous and Afro rights, is is not neither indigenous nor Afro. I mean, it, it's unthinkable. And and it's not like I mean, there are plenty of qualified, educated people in both camps who would be excellent for a position like that. And so, even within you know the progressive government of Claudia Lopez, we see at best an apathy towards indigenous and Afro issues within the country. I'm, when we look at actions as opposed to pithy catchphrases. Pithy catchphrases is what we do here in Colombia. <laughs> Didn't you see? Didn't you see the uh, the live broadcast of the arrival of the vaccines and and the press conference, and then the day after the arrival, the a live broadcast of the first vaccine being applied. I know they did it all over the world, but uh, to celebrate so roundly fifty thousand uh, vaccines arriving to Colombia, and then to say that yes, we've delivered for Colombia, and this is you know, this is above politics. Uh, yeah, pithy uh, catchphrases is is what we do. Um, that's the truth of the matter here. I I think it's I think it's incredibly worrying uh, this, and I think until you know Buenaventura, unfortunately, in my mind, they can protest and they can make their human chains, but things will continue in the same vein unless people mobilize. Let's say in Bogota, you know, like remember, I know that Boyacá and the other areas are much closer to Bogota, but when there was the agricultural blockades, which mm -hmm. obviously President Santos. They didn't exist to him, but uh, when he came out with that famous phrase, um, 
but if you can you start you know you start showing the people of the capital that you know we have the power to mobilize here and i'm not saying violent mobilization and i'm not saying you know the the, the you know the, the extremes and and so on just regular people wanting to uh clarify and to explain and uh-huh. share what they've lived and and i think that in a certain way, we saw that to a certain extent with the Para Nacional mm. in 2019 and the beginning of 2020, right? Um, and there have been mobilizations, large mobilizations in Cali on behalf of Buenaventura um, this past week, as well as some smaller mobilizations in Bogota, um, but not nothing on the same level um, of what's happening in Buenaventura itself. Yeah. And I think we, because, you know, we did see, like, you know, signs at the Paro Nacional, you know, no fracking in Buenaventura, like, you know, peace in Buenaventura, stuff like that. And so I think to a certain extent, there was this level of solidarity. And it's just such a bummer because I think this moment has such a huge uh, potential Mm-hmm. to be a catalyst kind of like what we call in social movements literature a critical event mm-hmm. for mobilization a tipping point a if tipping you will point, yeah. Yeah, and well, in particular when we take into context the international movement of black lives matter that's mm-hmm. happening right and so now we see changes to black lives matter signs saying all black lives matter mm-hmm you know, including those in Buenaventura. And we are seeing kind of these international calls of solidarity within the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think, yeah, I think this moment has, really does have such a capacity for mobilization and COVID is kind of shutting it down That's before it really has a chance to have the impact that it could have. That's, that's the great tragedy, not, you know, prior to COVID, but it's the great tragedy that COVID came in and, and you know, a, a, alongside all of the other tragedies, but it, there was a movement. There really was a solidarity. I mean, you and I, we all met at that at, at, uh, Paro Nacional. Yeah. And you introduced yeah. me to people from the Pacific Coast and we marched with them and the drumming and the signs. It was great fun. I mean, that. But it was there and there was solidarity and there were people very much in support of every age and social strata that's the other thing it wasn't just students and it wasn't just you know you're sort of uh, i mean leftist agitators everybody was out everybody and that was the most impacting yeah i mean there was i mean i saw people with their walkers you know out on la satima and like people with their babies and and it, and, it, and it was such a bummer because it did continue, right? You remember, there was a protest like every day in January and February of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really was shut down by COVID. And I think that the Paro Nacional and this larger movement, as well as the solidarity for Afro and Indigenous rights that existed within the Paro on the mobilization level, because there were issues with the negotiating team for the, like, Paro Nacional. Mm. But as far as mobilization goes, the solidarity that existed for ethnic rights, um, I, I don't think that has ever happened at that level in Colombia before. No, I took my, my son uh, down. I guess he was four or three, t- three turning four. I took him down to the anti-shark uh, fin 
uh, <laughs> March, Sharkfin uh, Harvesting March. He was very interested. I mean, he could understand uh, that because it was, you know, the animal, <laughs> the animal. But uh, listen, I think we could, unfortunately, uh, we'd have to stop, but we could talk forever. Um, but we've covered we've covered a lot again uh, in the second uh, you know conversation with you Shona and I, I am so appreciative of it I know you've got some academic literature coming out relatively soon so of course please be sure to share that so we can put that up or you know and share it all over social media so people yeah can- thank you yeah hopefully yeah like I, I told you before you started recording I'm waiting for copy edits on this article um, yeah, good luck. so hopefully within the next couple of weeks um, but when I do that and Puente Nayero is um, one of the cases that I discuss at length within the article. Excellent. Excellent. And so I guess it's the hashtag SOS Buenaventura is what we could follow if we're wanting to look for, you know, real time news about what's happening yeah. there. Um, but otherwise, I mean, you know, you just look around. And I know that other uh, international journalists have been down there recently. Stephen Gratton, who's a friend to the podcast, who's been on the show indeed as well, has just done a piece for Al Jazeera, uh, which mm-hmm. I put up on the website, on Facebook. And I know there'll be other pieces coming out soon. So it's it's hit its vein of form for right now. And unfortunately, yeah. it will drop off the news again when something else happens. Uh, it's, yeah. the, it's the reality. There's also an organization that's based out of Cali called um, Resistencia Antiracista. They are doing collections and donations for Buenaventura for those who were displaced last week. Hmm. Um, I have a screenshot of the information that I can send to you to yeah. put up. Yeah. Um, they're looking for material donations for anybody who might be near Kali, but they're also looking for financial donations too. Okay. Do things like rent houses for the people who were displaced. Oh wow, that's a yeah. I, I like that. It's a probably tangible way of helping out. That I like that. Yeah. So I'll send you those links um, for for anybody who is interested and willing and able uh-huh. to support that yes yes uh, and, and of course it's challenging times economically for so many and and you know uh, whatever you can do and, and i will post those uh, links and and so on so if if you are moved to make an you know do, do get involved please do please feel free shauna Gilluli, thank you so much for your time thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise unselfishly with us here to share you know, just to inform us about really what's going on. And it's it's all too often pushed to one side. I think it's been the history of the Pacific, Colombian Pacific Coast. It's just pushed to one side. It's easy to keep it out of sight, out of mind. So thank you so much for your time and your expertise on this. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me again. You're most welcome. You're most welcome. And of course, this has been the Columbia Calling uh, Podcast, episode 364. You could revisit Shauna's first conversation with us, which was 334, and it was called The Problem of the Coastal cities of Colombia's Pacific. Uh, and of course, we'll be back next week with more interviews. I think this next week will be about uh, youth activists uh, in terms of climate change, and especially in the light of the, the, I guess, the death threats that were sent out to one youth a- activist. I think he's under 10 years of age. I mean, unbelievable. So we'll be talking about that on next week's show. Um, but yes, please, everyone, stay safe out there, stay healthy. And, uh, and of course, Keep up to speed with the news from Colombia and uh, thank you for listening. Bye bye.
goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.